0: My name's Tom, if you don't know me, I'm on the staff team here, and I'm excited to say we're starting a new series tonight in the book of Revelation, a book I tend to try and avoid, but um, I think there's lots for us to to get out of this, and we're going to be going through uh, the seven churches of Revelation, so uh, I'll explain a bit bit of the context, uh, because it's always important when we're reading the Bible. Um... As a little side note, if Revelation is a book you don't know much about and you want to get your head around it a bit more, a little book recommendation is called Mystery Explained by David Campbell. He's a friend of mine and he spoke here last year. He's a theologian and a pastor and he wrote a commentary called Mystery Explained. So uh, I bought it and then literally the next week he bought out the second edition, which slightly annoyed me. As his friend, but never mind. Uh, So yeah, you can get the second edition. Um, But yeah, so just a little side note there. Uh, That's definitely worth reading. So, Revelation. It's important to start off by saying this. Revelation is not a handbook for last day events. It's really important to say that. Revelation is not a handbook for the last days. It was a letter written to local churches by the Apostle John. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to separate it off from the other letters in the New Testament, like Romans, Ephesians, Galatians. But this was what Revelation was. It was a letter written to a group of churches by the Apostle John. And then wider than that, it is a pastoral letter to Christians of all ages and generations, which teaches us how to live faithfully to God and Christ in the ups and downs that history brings Sometimes, well quite often you hear people try and interpret the book of Revelation through current day events. And there's a whole sort of well, rather large cottage industry around that. And books and interpretations and it was the Cold War and it's China and all sorts of things like that. And my encouragement would be is to stay, stay away from those attempts to do that. Um, because actually one of the best ways of understanding Revelation is looking backwards. Because there are more references to the Old Testament in Revelation than all of the other New Testament books put together. There are more references to the Old Testament in Revelation than all of the other New Testament books put together. About 500 references to the Old Testament in Revelations. If you want to understand Revelation better, a good place to start is the Old Testament. And of course, Revelation is also a prophetic but it's very much in the biblical model of prophecy where the biblical prophets would call the people of God to live lives of holiness and obedience. There's a, a biblical scholar called Richard Borkum who says this, it would be a serious mistake to understand the images of revelation as timeless symbols. The point is not to predict a sequence of events. The point is to evoke and to explore the meaning of the divine judgment which is impending on the sinful world. And if you were going to try and summarize the book of Revelation in in one line, which you probably shouldn't, but if you were to try and do that, I would just say this. It is all about the lordship of Jesus. It's all about the lordship of Jesus, about how he is lord of history, lord of time, how he is the first, the last, the alpha and the omega. He will wrap it all up and he has the victory. It's a great book. And so... um, John writes this letter and there's seven churches that get sent it it gets sent to you know uh, this morning in my talk I was started delving into a bit of the sort of human personal story around the 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 story that we read and again for this I sort of thought about imagine being one of the churches and and and, and literally getting this letter I mean I I don't know I think the postal system was invented by the romans I'm thinking of Monty Python, what did the Romans ever do for us? I think, think, in fact, I I know they did because it allowed Paul to send his letters out. So, you know, this was literally a letter that seven churches would have received. Um, And what's even more amazing about this, it was direct communication from Jesus via the Apostle John. Direct communication from Jesus. These churches found out directly from Jesus what he thought about them. That's a scary thought. I hope that email doesn't come into Hello at Life Vineyard. That would be, I don't know, <laughs> well, it might be a good letter. I assume it would be, but, you know, it, it's, it's daunting. And what's amazing is, is that we can take the words that he wrote to those seven churches and they address all kinds of situations and churches throughout the ages can read those letters and be challenged and moved by the words of Jesus. I said one of the, a big mistake we can make about Revelation is that to think it's all about end times but in the vineyard we believe that we've been living in the end times ever since jesus rose from the dead the end times began then and they will end when he, when he comes back so we have been in the end times ever since so uh, we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom so as i say john writes to these seven churches and in the letters Christ presents himself to these churches and we get a bit of the situation each church finds themselves in. He gives them an encouragement to persevere and then some of them include a warning to repent and then they all end with a promise to those that are obedient to the message. You could split the seven churches into three groups. The first and last are in poor spiritual health. The three in the middle are sort of a mixed situation and only the second and sixth have proven themselves faithful. And isn't that amazing? Only two out of the six, this letter would have written, been written, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 years after Christ had been resurrected. You'd think, Wow, oh, it must have been really easy for those churches to stay faithful. Well, no, it didn't take long and it's, it's the same for us. There's so much for us to be encouraged but also to take heed from in these letters. Richard Baucom also says this, The whole book is about why the Christians of the seven churches may, by being victorious within the specific situations of their own churches, enter the New Jerusalem. In this way, he shows the Christians of each of the seven churches how the issues in their local context belong to and must be understood in the light of God's cosmic battle against evil and his eschatological purpose of establishing his kingdom. So each one of these churches, it's a local situation, but part of God's bigger story, just like we are. We have our own local situation, we have our own challenges, we have our own encouraging points, but we are part of the cosmic story of Jesus' redemption of the whole world. So I'm going to read to us from the first one. So in Revelation 2, the letters begin, and we're going to look at Ephesus uh, tonight. That's a place I think that you would find in Turkey now, Um, and It's Revelation 2, 1 to 7. The words should come up on the screen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." Which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's a whole host of stuff you could look at here. I've only got one uh, bite of the cherry tonight, but we're, we're going to take some stuff out of it. And so the letter begins. With some encouraging points from Jesus, that's good. So we're going to look at those. So, firstly, he commends the church of Ephesus for their endurance, their patient endurance. The church would have been, I say, about 30 or 40 years old. They would have had maybe a, a few leaders in at that time, and the climate of the Roman Empire, with which they were a part, had become incredibly hostile towards Christianity. There was massive persecution. One of the Roman emperors would cover Christians in tar and light them while they were alive and use them as torches in his garden. It was an incredible moment of oppression. And Jesus comes to them and says, You have endured patiently. You have endured patiently. He also commends them for their holiness. He says, They cannot bear those who are evil. Ephesus was a, a large city and an evil, a city full of all sorts of evil and sin and corruption. Prostitution was rife, immorality. There were giant temples to worship pagan gods and yet they would not tolerate it. Jesus commends them for their holiness. He also commends them for their doctrine. He says you have tested those who claim to be apostles and found them not to be so. So they had great doctrine. They were able to test and weigh those who came supposedly in the name of God. And he also commends them for their hard work. How they have endured, they've bared up, they've labored, they've been diligent. They're a hard-working church. So this is all all going well. Endurance, holiness, doctrine, hard work. I assume when the letter came, they probably read it out loud. So you're thinking, this is, yep. Endurance tick, holiness tick, this is great. Thank you, Jesus. And then that uh, rather worrying line, yet I have this against you. Yet I have this against you. And he says this, you have lost your first love. You have lost your first love. What a statement to make. What a statement to read. What a statement to read. And this should immediately jump out to us. Because these letters, as I said, are timeless letters that we can all can read. And it cuts me to the core when I read that. Because if they were capable of losing their first love, it means I too have the potential to do the same. It means you have the potential to do the same. Part of me thinks this could have been a letter that was written to the post-pandemic church church. You know, we've, we've done our best to endure and hang in there and cling on and our doctrine's okay and we've worked hard but have we lost our first love? Have we lost that flame that burnt inside us many years ago and the last two years has done its best to put out? In the church today, Across the West, uh, sort of the celebrity pastor uh, has been around for a long time. I mean, there's a lot going on at the moment to maybe reverse that position. But we often, it's easy to think in the church, well look, if we get the celebrity pastor in, if we get the right leader in, the perfect leader, the big name, then our church will thrive if we get the charismatic leaders. But Ephesus tells us something different. The church was planted by Apostle Paul. He's, he was quite a good leader. And then it was led by Priscilla and Aquila, then Timothy, and then the Apostle John. <laughs> so they'd had probably the best list of leaders you could have asked for in the first 30 or 40 years after the church was born. And they still got into difficulty and they lost their love of Christ. And what does this tell us? It tells us this. We cannot subcontract out our relationship with Jesus to our leaders. And hasn't that been so true in the last two years? We've had to take a whole lot of responsibility for our walk with God. We cannot vicariously live our relationship with Jesus through our life group leaders, through the pastors in the church through the podcasts you listen to, through the talks you watch on YouTube. You have to kindle your love for Jesus. We can't do it for you. And we can have the best leaders and the best pastors, but we can't do it for you. So the best leaders don't guarantee that we will kindle our first love. Secondly, as as charismatics and people in the vineyard, we love Uh, praying for the sick we love the gifts of the Holy Spirit and it's sometimes easy to think well look if we get the miraculous then we won't lose our first love you know if we just have signs and wonders uh, breaking out all over the place then that that's it that's the golden ticket well the Bible has something to say about that we read in the Old Testament uh, the exodus and the plagues of Egypt you'd probably put them in the Maybe the top 10 Bible <laughs> miracles, you know, they're up there. Well, it, well, that all happened. And then about 10 minutes later, Moses up a mountain and they all build a golden calf and start worshipping it. Those are pretty big miracles and they didn't quite do the trick. And again, if we read about the context in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19... This is about Ephesus. We read this, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So the miraculous was so profuse and abundant, even handkerchiefs and aprons were doing the job. I mean, imagine that. Someone comes up to me or someone else and says, "Can you come and pray for this sick person?" I'm like, "Sorry, I haven't got time. Here's my jumper. (laughs) Here's—I don't have a handkerchief. Take my sock. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I mean, imagine—I would love that. I mean, I mean that would be amazing. My apron ministry hasn't begun yet, but they saw that, and that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. They'd had the best leaders." They'd had the best miracles. But Ephesus had still lost its first love. Sometimes we think if we get our theology just right, then we'll thrive. You know, we, uh, if we teach the Bible, if we tick all the boxes of uh, theology, if we do all the courses, then people will come and we will thrive. Well, again, Ephesus gives us a little warning because if I, I challenge you, go away and read the book of Ephesians, which was another letter sent to them, and come back and tell me if there's a better letter in the New Testament with more theology in it than that. It is a comprehensive book, jam-packed full of amazing doctrine. It's, it's an all-encompassing letter. It's probably my favorite letter in the New Testament. It's all in there and they got that and that wasn't enough. The best leaders, the most miracles, handkerchiefs, doctrine. And yet they'd still lost their first love. And that phrase, you have forsaken your first love, the Greek word means to dismiss or send away. So everything that was good that was going on in that church, their perseverance, their holiness, their doctrine, their hard work, had resulted in them getting to a place where they could say, thanks Jesus, we've, we've got it. Sending him away. Thanks Jesus, we're okay. And so Jesus says this, he says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember the height from which you have fallen. And that's a really devastating word to use because the word fall has some serious implications in the Bible. The fall in Genesis, the fall of Satan. Jesus wasn't mincing his words. And again, the book of Ephesians explains to us the height from which they had been. In chapter two, it says that they had been saved and raised up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is the height Jesus was saying they had fallen from. And Jesus was calling them to remember. And he calls us, too, to Remember. Remember our story, the bad bits, the good bits, all the things that God has done for you, how he saved you, how he's wooed you, called you, how he's loved you, how he's been faithful to you, never left you, how he knew you before you were born, how he died for you and rose for you, how he gave up his place at the right hand of the Father to be incarnated as a baby for you. And how now he's your advocate in heaven, praying for you unceasingly. And how one day he'll come back for you. Remember. Remember our story. Take a minute now and just think of all the wonderful things Jesus has done for you. Day after day after day, year after year. Think of all the times that you convinced yourself that everything was going wrong and that he left you and how his grace was even closer than you realized and his mercies were new every day. And then Jesus caused them to repent because Jesus' vision for them and his vision for us is that we would be people who have him and him alone as our first love. And so when we get to a place where he is no longer in that position, we need to return and repent and place him back on the throne in our hearts. For those of you who have been married uh, for some time, you were, or maybe in a relationship for some time, you'll remember how at the start it's, it's so romantic and the love is just feels like it's you know a hundred percent all you want to do is be together and we all had those friends maybe growing up who they started dating and we never saw them again all they wanted, all they wanted to, to do was be together. You get swept away in the relationship. You get engaged and you get married and that's an amazing day. And then you go on your honeymoon and then you come back and you're like, oh. And then all the gifts come. You're like, yeah, that's great. And then like, you just feel so excited about it all. And then you go back to work. And then you go and stay with the in-laws. <laughs> David knows. and then life takes over and you feel tired maybe if you're able to have children and they're not sleeping and you feel even more tired maybe your spouse you realise they're a bit annoying in some ways Thank you, thank you. (laughs) And before you know it, you can realize that you've lost that sense of first love. Busyness, weariness, regret. It's not to say that you should stay as newlyweds or we should stay as newlyweds with Jesus, that sort of feeling of when we first meet him. But if you're going to survive in a relationship you have to guard and protect the flame of love that burns. You have to do it and you have to prioritize it. As we know, humanly, if you don't, things get into difficulty and it's the same with God. So what does this mean for us? Well, we're presented with the same difficult question. Have we drifted away from our first love? Has that burning center of love that we used to have grown dim? As I said, maybe, what are two years to do it? If anything would do it, it's probably the last two years. And so there is no shame and no condemnation whatsoever from anyone, especially from Jesus, This is not a message of condemnation. This is an invitation to come again. To come again into God's presence and let him blow on the fire in your heart. Because you won't do it through works or through effort or through getting holy or through doing a quiet time. You do it in his presence and when the Holy Spirit pours into you. Abraham Joshua Heschel who was an amazing rabbi, said this, the art of awareness of God, the art of sensing his presence in our daily lives cannot be learned offhand. God's grace resounds in our lives like a staccato. Only by retaining the seemingly disconnected notes comes the ability to grasp the theme. Only by retaining the seemingly disconnected notes comes the ability to grasp the theme. Our lives are full of staccato moments of God's grace. Even today, all of us will have had moments of God's grace. And yet it's so easy to view them as one-off events. Spaced out, disconnected. But if we tune our ear to the sound that's playing, to the symphony, the wonderful symphony of God's grace in your life, the melody of love, it never ends and it's all connected and it never stops and it goes on and on and it builds the melody of God's grace for you. So we invite you tonight to come, come again and have your heart set on fire, rekindle the flame, of your love why don't we stand in this moment and let's just adopt a a posture of openness to the Holy Spirit whatever you want to do whatever helps you in this moment you know what we do with our bodies really matters Um, putting your hands out it's not hype and it's not something, you know, if I was talking to someone and they're slouched on a seat, you think, well, they don't really want me to talk to them. And it's the same. What we do with our bodies helps us get into a position of receiving. So we welcome you here, Holy Spirit. And Lord, would you come and blow on the flames of our heart? Would you come and blow on the flames of our heart? Lord, we know, we know where we are. We know the things that have taken away our gaze from you. And so, Father, we take this moment now to lay them down. Would you come again and sit on the throne of our hearts? So we're just going to wait. As we do business with God in this moment. I want to read to us just a little passage from Leviticus 6. And this is the Lord speaking to Moses. And he says this, command Aaron and his sons saying this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them in beside the altar. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And so we all have an altar, the altar of our hearts that we bring to God, and we need to keep them burning. And I think in this moment, the Holy Spirit wants to come and speak to you about what you need to do in your life to keep the fire on the altar of your heart burning. For some of you, it will be this evening, laying down sinful practices, habits, thought patterns that you know you need to give up. For some of you, it will involve giving up some of your time. But also, I really feel for some of you, the artists, the musicians, the songwriters, people who appreciate nature, beauty, this is how we fend off lukewarmness. We listen out to the symphony of God's grace wherever we go. So I just want to pray now, Lord, that you would release the artists, the painters, the sculptors. Father, would you release in us a fresh appreciation of you all around us when we walk in the park? Lord, when we help those in need, you are there, Jesus. Rekindle the flame.